What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Marvin, I love you. Remember, I'm programmed for you. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our other host, Lauren, is not with us today. But you you had something to say about Marvin there. Now, does that mean today we're going to be talking about somebody named Marvin? We are. Is it going to be Lee Marvin? It will not be Lee Marvin, apart from this very moment where we are talking about Lee Marvin. No, Lee Marvin wouldn't make a lot of sense on this podcast. No, I mean, you know, the, the lyric refers to Marvin, the paranoid android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh-huh. But we're not talking about that Marvin either, although we're talking about a Marvin who had a lot to do with artificial intelligence, which Marvin, the paranoid android, possessed a great deal of. <laughs> That was kind of a long way of going about that. We're talking about Marvin Minsky. Marvin Minsky. So he, he passed away last month. Yes. Uh, Marvin Minsky was an artificial intelligence pioneer associated with uh, MIT. Mm-hmm. And he, he passed away on Sunday, January 4th, 2016. And a bunch of uh, publications that I read and I'd seen online had been running some retrospectives of his life, looking at his influence on his main field, which I guess you would say is artificial intelligence, but also on the history of computational theory and on uh, cognitive science, you might say. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we often will refer to artificial intelligence as being multidisciplinary. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, you could argue artificial intelligence is its own discipline, but within that you have other disciplines. It's far more complex than just a label. Yeah, and, uh, and really, if you're talking about the the entire scope of artificial intelligence, it, it almost necessarily encompasses all of human knowledge. Yeah, you're you're not wrong. I mean, and Minsky, in many ways, uh, was kind of a, a human example of this because uh, he certainly had a wide 
a variety of interests. And um, and so we wanted to really kind of talk about them. And in a way, we're thinking about doing uh, occasionally an episode about a forward thinker of some sort. So we may in the future do episodes about other forward thinkers. This is sort of a pilot program mm-hmm. for that. And uh, I know there are a lot of people we would love to talk about in the future. So we're going to kind of start with this one. And if you guys out there have people, you know, forward thinkers you would love us to to profile, mm-hmm. you should definitely let us know. And we'll talk more about that at the end. But let's talk more about Minsky. Yeah. And so we, we thought it'd be good to talk about Minsky because we so often talk about artificial intelligence on the program. And mm-hmm. it's one of the great uh, future frontiers that, that we keep coming back to. And right. that his, his influence on the development of artificial intelligence in the second half of the 20th century has been so profound. And also his views on where artificial intelligence had been going over the last decade are really interesting. Yeah. Uh, we'll conclude with our discussion on that. But to start off at the beginning... Minsky himself was born in New York City on August 9th, 1927. Yeah, I – so there was a piece that we read that was a profile of Minsky from The New Yorker in 1981 that was written by the physicist Jeremy Bernstein. It was – just shy of a full autobiography. I mean, it was, yeah, it was really comprehensive. Yeah. And and one of the things it makes me realize is that we totally do not have space on this podcast to cover all of the interesting aspects of his life. Right. Uh, so we're just going to do a kind of highlight reel of some of the things that stuck out to us. Sure. But if you're interested in the stuff we have here, uh, I would highly recommend checking that out to mm-hmm. learn more about him. Uh, but anyway, th- that piece is going to be the source of several quotes that I- I've pulled about Minsky's childhood and, and education that I thought would help give you a, a better picture of sort of the color of his personality in life. Right, yeah, because this guy was uh, – a lot of people described him as being imaginative and humorous mm-hmm. and maybe some people would say eccentric. Certainly they would say you know, he was very enthusiastic. So a vibrant personality, not like some person who would – uh, cloister himself away from everybody else in order to work on ideas. He, he strikes me as uh, a, a quintessential outside-the-box thinker. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So, somebody who would always approach a problem in a, in a strange and usually fruitful way. And he loved to uh, incorporate uh, students in his in his thinking. He loved to collaborate with students because I think, although I don't think he ever necessarily articulated it this way, to me it sounds like he loved to talk with people who had not yet learned what was impossible uh-huh. because that meant that they didn't put those constraints on their ideas from the beginning. And that's where you see a lot of innovation. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I, I think it's kind of inspiring in that right. I agree. But but I want to start with with a, a little uh, – a, a picture of, of little Marvin. Okay. So he's talking about the different interests he had in uh, in subjects in school when, when he was a kid. And he, he talks about his interest in chemistry. And this is his sort of hands-on approach to, to doing experiments and learning things firsthand. Mm-hmm. So he says – I'd been reading some chemistry books, and I thought it would be nice to make some chemicals. <laughs> in particular, I had read about ethyl mercaptan, which interested me because it was said to be the worst-smelling thing around. <laughs> I went to – and this is his teacher, uh, Zim, Mr. Zim. I went to Zim and told him that I wanted to make some. He said, sure, how do you plan to do it? We talked about it for a while, and he convinced me that if we were going to be thorough, we should first make ethanol, from which we were to make ethyl chloride. I did make the ethanol and then the ethyl chloride, which instantly disappeared. It's about the most volatile thing there is. I think Zim had fooled me into doing this synthesis knowing that the product would evaporate before I had actually got to make that awful mercaptan. I remember being sort of mad and deciding that chemistry was harder than it looked on paper because when you synthesize something, it can just disappear. <laughs> I thought this was an interesting metaphor also for the the way you would end up chasing the basis of physical intelligence. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's one thing that he would refer to, uh, you know, he would say that intelligence was sometimes what he would call a suitcase word. Yeah. Because he would cram so many different concepts into the the – suitcase of intelligence. And uh, uh, we've also mentioned this when he would say the same thing about consciousness. But I know that we've on this episode, or not this episode, but on the show, I've talked about how consciousness is kind of one of those ideas where you almost define it by striking things out from under the umbrella of consciousness. Right. 
And then you're like, okay, so whatever's left, that's what consciousness is. Yeah. It's, it's and, this and some weird people, world. Some people have made the criticism of, of consciousness theory that, you know, it's almost like uh, when you're saying what consciousness is, you're just making a list of all the things the brain does and then striking out everything that we fully understand. Right. Or not fully understand, but everything that we understand the physical basis of. Yeah, we've got a good grip on the actual mechanisms that are going on uh, behind the scenes. And so, uh, actually, I'm okay with using consciousness as a placeholder Mm -hmm. until we figured everything else out. That'll kind of come into play with his ideas on what thought was all about. But uh, before we get to that, we also need to talk about how when he was – uh, in, the ni- in 1944, he was, uh, joined the U.S. Navy, yeah. served in the Navy uh, until 1945. Yeah, I think he explains that he he joined the Navy because he was saying that he knew they would send him to electro- electricians, electrical school, whatever they called it back then. Yeah. Uh, they would send him to school uh, if, he, if he joined. Right. So I think he was going to – he was on track to be a radar technician or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that you know, he was in the military, so they had him do basic training. He says – and he talks about this group that he was in the in the Navy with. And he says, our little group was a strange kind of mini Harvard in the middle of the Navy. Everything seemed unrealistic. I practiced shooting down planes on an anti-aircraft simulator. I held the base record. I shot down 120 planes in a row. I realized I had memorized the training tape and knew in advance exactly where each plane would appear, but I must have some odd skill in marksmanship. Many years later, my wife and I were in Mexico on a trip. We came across some kids shooting at things with a rifle. I asked them if I could try it, and I hit everything. It seems that I have a highly developed skill at shooting things, for which there is no explanation. I, I, also, <laughs> I also love... That he he talks about how there were maybe four people in my company who are really remarkable, including a mathematician and an astronomer. And you start hearing this yeah. and you think, there's like a nerdy version of Inglorious Bastards that could be made <laughs> from Minsky's experience in the Navy. So uh-huh. instead of being these these tough like special forces guys, it's like the brilliant uh, mathematicians and scientists who were part of the Navy and then went on to go and do other things. Uh-huh. Um, Minsky, after he left the Navy, uh, joined – well, he, he attended Harvard University. Yeah. And this is where we really get a first look at how he was interested in so many different fields that collectively lent themselves to this idea of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, he studied psychology and he studied neurophysiology and physics. Uh, when he graduated, his degree was in mathematics – but he was interested in all this stuff while he was in school. Yes, he moved around a lot. Like uh, he, he says, quote, I was nominally a physics major, but I also took courses in sociology and psychology. I got interested in neurology. Around the end of high school, I started thinking about thinking. One of the things that got me started was wondering why it was so hard to learn mathematics. You take an hour a page to read this thing and still it doesn't make sense. Then suddenly it becomes so easy it's trivial. I had never thought about that before, but he's exactly right about understanding math concepts. It's always been that way for me that you can go over how to use a certain operator. You know, you're learning a new type Mm -hmm. of mathematical function or operation and it's just banging your head against a wall until you get it. And then as soon as you get it, it it's it seems so simple, it's stupid. Yeah, this was how I experienced math when I was in high school. Uh, I remember by the time I got to trigonometry, uh, it was it didn't take very long for that switch to click in my head where I would see what I was supposed to do and understand why I was doing it that way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I hit calculus and I'm not certain what the, the roadblock was, but for some reason when I hit calculus, that switch would take longer and longer to click. And I would often attribute that to the fact that I think the way it was being taught was, here's how you do this, not here's why you do this. Uh-huh. So I think it also depends on your approach to learning that concept. But I totally get what he's saying, where you look at something and it just feels like I could read this for the 20th time, but it's still not going to become any more clear to me. And then two hours later, when you're doing something totally different, you just think, oh, wait, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it says something very interesting about human cognition. And I think this insight that he mentions here 
could very well come into play when we're talking about how you construct intelligence from base parts. Yeah. Uh, be, because there, there's something happening here. There's something about intuition and about maybe uh, the, the formation of, uh, of pathways like you would have in a neural network where, right. you know, once the pathway is set, now you can find your way back there quite, quite easily. Yeah, you could even think of that as being, you know, make it an analogy of a physical pathway through a forest. Like uh-huh. the first time you go and make a path, you're cutting your way through. It's a lot of work. Uh, It might even be hard for you to retrace it the first time, but after you've done it a couple of times, there's a pretty worn path there that's much easier to follow. Yeah. It's it's a fitting analogy in many ways. But Minsky also had, as we've said, very eclectic interests when Mm -hmm. he was in school. Uh, For example, there is – all throughout his life, he was interested in music. And I love what he says about music here. This is another interesting thing about cognition that I'll get to in this. He says, quote, I'd also taken a number of music courses with Irving Fine. He usually gave me C's or D's, but he kept encouraging me to come back. He was a tremendously honest man. (laughs) Is that referring to the C's and D's? I'm not sure. Uh, He says he was a tremendously honest man. I think the problem was that I was basically an improviser, one of those people who can occasionally improvise an entire fugue in satisfactory form without much conscious thought or plan. The trouble is, the more I work on a piece deliberately, the worse it gets. I can totally get behind this too. Uh huh. Because you know we're both writers, Joe, uh-huh. and I'm sure I, there's yes, I know what he's talking about. There's there. been experiences where you'll sit down and you just you get a nugget of inspiration, and you just start writing. Mm-hmm. And what you end up with, you may have to go back and revise a little bit, but in large part, it's just it feels really satisfying. And there are other times when you think. I have an idea. I'm going to go ahead and start the whole process of outlining all of this and then blocking it all out and then I'll actually get around to writing it. And then like, you know, two hours later, you're just like, I don't know whatever made me think this was worth putting down on paper. Yeah, I know exactly (laughs) what you mean. I mean, usually I would say for most people and for myself, more work leads to improvement, but not all the time. Yeah. Sometimes you can just write a thing to death. Mm-hmm. You, the more you keep tinkering with it, the less interesting it becomes. Yep, yep. Uh, so by 1951, he had uh, graduated Harvard the year before, and then he goes and joins uh, Princeton University for postgraduate studies. And uh, that same year, he built the world's first neural network simulator. And this is this is a thing that is worth noting it's a neural network simulator in 1951, so try to imagine that. This is not based on microchips. No. Um, also, it was called SNARK, uh-huh. which is great. It's S-N-A-R-C, and that stands for Stochastic Neural Analog Reinforcement Calculator, which really clears it all up. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stochastic is one of those words that's going to pop up a couple of times as we talk about this. In case you aren't familiar with the term, it essentially means random. Mm-hmm. That's That's kind of a easy way of translating it. Uh, So he graduated Princeton in 1954 with a doctorate in mathematics. The following year in 55, he invented the confocal scanning microscope, uh, which actually uses a little spatial pinhole inside the lens. And the purpose of that is to filter out all the light that would not be in focus. So it therefore creates a higher resolution image of whatever it is you're looking at through the microscope. Uh So it's kind of um, just really improving resolution. Now, in 1957, uh, Marvin Minsky began to work for MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he was specifically interested in researching computers in order to understand human thought, which Mm -hmm. uh, might seem counterintuitive to some people. Like, why would you look at computers in order to get a better understanding of how humans think? There was a really good analogy, I thought, in um, one of the pieces we looked at. It was on Mm -hmm. edge.org that was talking about – it was interviewing different people with recollections about Minsky's life. But there was one part of this piece that talked about how even though the analogy was not perfect, if you were a person today who wanted to understand how birds fly, Mm -hmm. probably one of the easiest ways to start would be to look at how airplanes work. Even though airplanes and birds work in a different way, you can start getting the principles about what, you know, how things stay aloft in the air by looking at what an airplane needs to do in order to not fall. Hmm. And I think the the same thing could be true about computers and brains. Both do computation. Uh, both do information processing. So if you look at a thing that's kind of graceful and mysterious like a human mind – 
and you want to try to understand it, it might be a good place to start to say, okay, how does information processing work in a machine? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always hesitant about that. I, there are a lot of things that Minsky talks about that I, I like a lot, mm-hmm. but it's because it relates to the mind, not the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because I know that computers process information in a very different way than the way we think in general. I mean, if you're talking about classical computers and the neural uh, networks that we have in our – the wetware we have in our heads. Uh, so I'm always hesitant to make that comparison. However, when you go to an abstract level of the human mind as opposed to the human brain, then suddenly these conversations make a lot more sense to me. And I'm a lot more um, inclined to agree and engage on that level yeah. as opposed to just crossing my arms and going, hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it plays on the same principle as the idea of the universal computer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you, If you have a Turing machine, you know, you have a basic universal computer. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter what the hardware is. If you can do the basic computing functions, you can do the same job as a different kind of computer that uses different hardware. Right, right. Well, moving on with our little biography on Marvin Minsky before we get into some more details about uh, specific ideas. In 58 or 59, the reason why I put that down is because depending on what source you read, some site that uh, this happened in 1958, others in 1959. My suspicion is this particular thing took a long time to happen and probably started in 58 and became official in 59. Uh-huh. Uh, Minsky partnered with a man named John McCarthy, who was a professor of electrical engineering at MIT, and together they formed the MIT AI Laboratory. And as a side note, John McCarthy is generally attributed as the person who actually coined the phrase artificial intelligence in the mid-1950s. Huh. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, so he was another... Uh, uh, founding father of the science of artificial intelligence. Like, you know, if you were to make a list, you'd have people like Ada Lovelace and mm-hmm. uh, Alan Turing and Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy all on that list uh, easily. I mean, you would not want to leave them off. He would, uh, Minsky, that is, would stay with MIT for the rest of his career. He became the uh, Donner Professor of Science in 1974 and the Toshiba Professor of Media Arts and Sciences at the MIT Media Lab in 1990. Yeah, well, I, I think we should now just transition to a more general discussion of what were some of Minsky's uh, influential ideas, concepts, and books. Sure. Uh, because as we've said earlier, he was massively influential. We we don't have time to talk about everything, but we want to highlight a few interesting things that he brought forward. And, and uh, a lot of his work kind of uh, relates to this running theme of uh, the whole and its parts. Yeah. Like, so whole as in W-H-O-L-E, right. uh, the entirety and its parts. That, Specifically with reference to intelligence. Right. That, that's a running theme throughout all, a lot of his work. Uh, one of his early ideas uh, was something that he called frames. It was this concept that he, he proposed in 1975. And he defined frames as the general information a computer system would have to possess before it could make specific decisions. So, so what do you mean by that? All right. So let's say that you've, you've, you've built yourself a robot and you want the robot to do things. In order for the robot to, to do the things you want it to do, you have to teach the robot certain concepts first. I love that sentence. You want the robot to do things. Yeah. Like, well, it's, you know, you could just build a robot, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're awesome and you're just like, I just want some universal robots running around this place. But, you know, I don't care if they do anything. No, you must send it upon the world yeah. with a mission. But if you – here's a simple example. You've got a Roomba. Okay. You built a Roomba. Well, before you can just set a Roomba down and have it vacuum a, a, a room, you've got to teach it general concepts, things like uh, walls, you know, uh, the what happens if you come up to a ledge, all this kind of stuff. You have to teach it all of this before it can complete the task it was built for. So one example that is commonly cited is imagine you've got a computer system and you've got a series of rooms and these rooms are connected to each other through doorways mm-hmm. that actually have doors on them. In order to have a this computer system be able to navigate through those rooms, you know, presumably through some sort of robotic form, it would have to understand how doors work, what a door is, that a door could swing either inward or outward, mm-hmm. the various mechanisms that might be employed in order to work a door, whether it's a door knob or 
um, a handle that's got uh, a latch that you have to press down with your thumb or maybe even a bar that you have to push or pull. And you have to teach the computer system all these things. Now, these are things that humans, once you teach them once, yeah. humans are really good. Like they you can recognize the, You get the basic concept of a door. You've got pretty much all doors ready to go. Yeah, you might get thrown by something like a revolving door that you see for the first time. But most, most of the time, you're going to see a door and you're going to think, all right, this is either going to open inward or outward. It's not going to do anything else unless uh-huh. it's Star Trek and then it goes psh. But yeah, um, you, like you said, you're a robot and you come to a door with different types of doorknobs. Yeah. Or with doorknobs at different height or, right. you know. Or you only taught the, the robot how to open a door if it opens outward. What if it's a push door and it doesn't have a knob? Yeah. I mean, these are all sort of things that, that we take for granted as humans because we've had some experience and we're able to extrapolate. Computer systems in general are not good at this. Computer systems are very good at performing tasks that they've been programmed to do, but they're not so good at doing tasks they haven't been programmed to do. Right. Who'd have thunk it? So, um, but he was he was using this this idea of frames as a way of explaining this concept of these are the these are the sort of uh, uh, contextual information buckets that you need to teach a computer system in order for it to be able to do the thing you designed it to do in whatever environment that might be, whether it's, uh, you know, a robot moving around rooms or uh, autonomous sub- submarine exploring uh, underwater features, anything, really. Mm. Though I would suggest that, well, I guess I'd have to guess because I don't know for sure, but I would guess that Minsky would agree that if the human mind can figure out things without having to be told them, a computer potentially can too. It just needs the right equipment. It, well, it needs the right processes to be able to know things without being told them. It would need to be able – it would still need some frames, right? Like mm-hmm. for example, if I uh, – let's say that that your mind is completely wiped, Joe. So uh, let's imagine it's last Tuesday because we all know what happened that day. Uh, and I were to produce for you a coffee mug. Uh-huh. And I point to this and I say, this is a mug. Sometimes people refer to it as a cup and it holds liquid. This is where the liquid goes. As a human I would being. would be like, what's, what's liquid? What's, we've already covered what that part. We've already, we've already gotten to that part though. That stuff we already covered. Oh, the, okay. This is actually pretty advanced in the day. This is like 4 p.m. on Tuesday. And so, uh, but at that point, you would you would be able to recognize another cup, even if it were a different color, different size, even if it were a slightly different shape. Let's say it's like a novelty cup, so it's in the shape of a TARDIS or something. You would know. You might not know that that's a TARDIS, but you would know that that was a cup. Yeah. And uh, you would be able to use it as such. Whereas computer systems, if you haven't built in any sort of machine learning so that they can actually start to extrapolate information. They can't do that, yeah. right? If it's, it, if it's, it might not even recognize the same cup if the light in the room is different. Or if it's a little too far away from the camera or a little too close right. because the size will look different to it by perspective. So, uh, you know, you would still need those frames at least to exist for some amount of information so that the machine could know what to do. Uh, but the goal, of course, in artificial intelligence is to – get machines sophisticated enough where those frames can be more basic, mm-hmm. that you don't have to map out every single possibility in order for a machine to be able to understand, that the machine itself would be able through perhaps even trial and error learn how things work. Like if you taught the uh, the the machine how certain doors, like let's say that you've got 10 different varieties of doors in this other scenario we mentioned, and you teach it about five of them, and how those five work. And it has all the basic information of how all the doors work, but the other five are slightly different variations on it. And you have taught it how to uh, do trial and error so that it can actually experiment when it encounters a door that doesn't fit the five that it was taught. That would be more like a human. It will, it will do science in order to break on through to the other side. Right. Yeah. It might just turn into a robotic Kool-Aid man uh-huh. you know, and just – crash through. But your goal is so that it actually learns and experiments and continues to uh, uh, 
grow its own knowledge. Okay, well, let's look at another one of Minsky's influential ideas, which is his society of mind theory. Now, he had a book called Society of Mind, I think in 1985, right? Yeah. Uh, Before that, he had started really playing around with this concept uh, all the way back in the 1960s. And what really inspired him was that he started to work on a very basic robotic system uh, and it was a very simple exercise in artificial intelligence, simple in the sense that it was elegant, not simple as in it was easy to do. Yeah, and Minsky had done some work with uh, with robotic motion and the, the manipulation of, of arms and claws and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Even back when he was in school, this was one of the great stories from that piece in The New Yorker Mm -hmm. uh, that Minsky tells. So once the Harvard zoology professor John Welsh offered Minsky access to his lab and his equipment after Minsky found out that scientists didn't know how the nerves in crayfish worked. And uh, Minsky told The New Yorker, I became an expert at dissecting crayfish. At one point, I had a crayfish claw mounted on an apparatus in such a way that I could operate the individual nerves. I could get the several jointed claw to reach down and pick up a pencil and wave it around. (laughs) I'm not sure that what I was doing had much scientific value, but I did learn which nerve fibers had to be excited to inhibit the effects of another fiber so that the claw would open. And it got me interested in robotic instrumentation, something that I have now returned to. I'm trying to build better micro manipulators for surgery and the like. Yeah. So in between his uh, Frankenstein-like experiments with crayfish claws mm-hmm. and developing uh, micro mechanical systems for surgery, he was experimenting with this very basic artificial intelligence robotic arm apparatus. And it consisted of a computer that did calculations Uh, a camera that could focus in on what needed to be manipulated, a robotic arm, and then a series of blocks. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that if you could uh, teach the computer system what certain terms were, like I want you to build a tower, that uh, you would then uh, be able to teach the robot how to pick up a block, how to manipulate it so it's in the right place, how to stack the blocks so that they're stable, and also to teach them things that people kind of grasp pretty quickly once they get out of the infant stage of their lives. Like if you're trying to build a tower and you've got three blocks stacked on one another and you need to put, you know, your instruction is make this tower four blocks high. One solution is not to grab the block that's on the bottom of the tower (laughs) Pull it free right. and then try and place it at the top. The one, the one I was thinking was, you, you, would, it, would it necessarily understand that you have to lay down the lowest level first? Right. If you try and uh, – all right, well, you know, let's, let's start from the top and work our way down. That yeah. doesn't – you can't do that. This is something we've talked about before, but I, I do think it's a, an interesting thing about artificial intelligence that's often overlooked is uh, the, the basic locomotion mm-hmm. and uh, physical interactions with objects is a kind of intelligence. Absolutely. It's, it's not at all just like, well, that's the dumb thing the robots do and artificial intelligence is getting them to, to be chatterbots, you know, to mm-hmm. pass the Turing test and have, have conversations. I mean, right. m- knowing how to move things in your environment in a smart way is absolutely artificial intelligence. Sure, yeah. You know, knowing uh, uh, how to handle any particular, do, you know, object so that you are not damaging it, that you can move it effectively. You might even want to program in things where the robot knows I cannot move this particular object because either it's too delicate or it's too heavy or whatever it may be. Yeah. Okay. But back to Minsky. So when Minsky was working on this, he began to think about all the different elements that are necessary in order to make this task possible. And he began to look at kind of discrete facets of intelligence that are required in order for you to do this. And that's where he had this breakthrough, this idea that led to the society of mind idea. So in the 1970s, he began to develop this theory, and he published a lot of essays on the subject. And he worked with uh, an MIT mathematician named Seymour Papert on uh, several of the early ideas. So the book came out in 1985, and the argument he makes is that the mind, not the brain, but the human mind, is made up of individual parts called agents. And agents, it's important to note, have no mind of their own. So agents themselves have no emotion. They have no thought. They are aspects of the mind itself. Mm-hmm. And each agent is responsible for a particular aspect of intelligence. 
And it's through their cooperation that conscious thought emerges, according to the society of mind theory. And it's really about how the mind works at a conceptual level as opposed to the biological level. This is an idea I've encountered before in cognitive science, but I wasn't aware in the past that it really came from Minsky. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's a lot to this. I think this is a very I, – I would consider this a very plausible and convincing way to think about what consciousness and intelligence are. And even if you are hesitant to argue for that, at the very least, it is a very compelling way to think of artificial intelligence. Yes. How do you get a machine to do any particular thing that would require uh, intelligence on behalf of that machine? Yeah. But if, if you're not convinced, maybe we should look at an example. And this comes straight from the book. In fact, I, I read the book. Um, nice. It's very easy to read. Uh, each idea is about a page long, and each chapter is a collection of between eight or nine ideas, uh, maybe more or fewer, depending upon the chapter, and there are 37 chapters. Uh, and I love – I actually also watched the beginning of a lecture that Minsky gave. There's an open course on uh, MIT where you can go to MIT's website and watch a lecture series led by Minsky himself from 2011. Oh, that sounds fun. I kind of want to get on that. It's pretty cool. And at the very beginning, he talks about how he really liked Society of Mind. And the main reason he liked it is that so each idea is like a page long. And if you don't like it, you could totally skip it and go to the next one. It's really easy. <laughs> it's like <laughs> this other book I wrote later, the chapters are much longer. And if you don't like an idea, you kind of have to just keep going. <laughs> and like, and I was like, uh, you can't really hear the students, but I would hope there was some good natured chuckling going on. Uh -huh. um, at any rate, so he gives an example in his book uh, and he presents a very simple scenario. The idea that uh, you are told to pick up a cup of tea and you're going to you're going to drink from this cup occasionally, but that's all it is. Immediately what I'm thinking of is something you mentioned on the podcast a few epi episodes ago, which is the uh, office simulator. Yes. Where you pick up the cup and throw it. Just, and... just start throwing things across the uh, the virtual reality office. Uh -huh. that, that video is hilarious, by the way. So from his book, he says, let's think about all the elements that go into picking up a cup of tea. Uh, in the, in this idea of uh, society of mind that's made up of agents. He says, your grasping agents want to keep hold of the cup. And he uses the word want as in, not not that they have a an actual motivation, but that's their purpose. Yeah. So your grasping agents want to keep hold of the cup. Your balancing agents want to keep the tea from spilling out. Your thirst agents want you to drink the tea. Your moving agents want to get the cup to your lips. So he argues that these four agents working together, although each one is independent, and that is important, they're independent of one another, but they're working together in concert, can accomplish the task of allowing you to drink your tea. And more importantly, you can do this while doing other things. Like mm -hmm. you could – his example was walking around like at a uh, like at a, a tea party type deal and you're having conversations with people and you're just casually holding your tea and occasionally sipping it, but you're not thinking about that, right? At least not consciously thinking about it. Clearly, Slay in the kids with those tea party <laughs> metaphors. Right. But clearly your brain is doing all this work, uh -huh. right? It's not like you're just magically holding this cup and keeping the liquid from spilling out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he said that, you know, consciously you're not really aware of it. Uh, so in my example, I said, you could uh, you could drink your tea while not interrupting uh, other stuff you might be doing, such as telling the Queen of England that hilarious story about the time you got drunk on the tube. Because um, <laughs> as soon as I think tea, I'm like, well, clearly, I'm, if I'm drinking tea, I'm obviously having tea having with the Queen of England. With yeah. the Queen, yeah. yeah, as as I am wont to do. Yeah. And so Minsky would go on to argue that the concept of agents is a necessary concept. He, he argues that if we cannot and this is a quote, explain the mind in terms of things that have no thoughts or feelings of their own will only have gone round in a circle. So in other words, he says that if your definition of thinking requires you to talk about smaller elements that also think, you're, you're not really describing thinking. You're, right. you're, just, you're just shifting the definition around to different parts of the brain. This is something that parallels uh, an analogy that I remember coming across in the works of Daniel Dennett, the cognitive philosopher. Mm -hmm. uh, and he 
so he presents this idea of the Cartesian theater. Have you ever heard this? I've heard the term. Uh, well, essentially he says, okay, so some people think that, look, there is uh, – what your eyes do mm-hmm. is that they take in light from your surroundings and they paint a picture and it's like the brain projects that picture as a movie screen for you to see. But who's doing the seeing? So then you have to imagine that really inside your brain is a small is a little brain that gets to sit in the movie theater of your mind and watch the screen that is made by your eyes. And so but who's seeing within that brain in right. that movie theater? So if you keep postulating a little person inside you that is the audience of your thoughts or the audience of what you are perceiving it's an infinite infinite regress. Right, right. And that's not helpful if you want to have an actual meaningful conversation about how is this working. Yeah. Um, so the book divides up concepts into these categories. I kind of mentioned that where you have like maybe up to eight or nine of these one sheet uh, descriptions collected under these categories. And those categories include things like holes and parts, kind of what I was referring to earlier, conflict mm-hmm. and compromise, the self problems and goals, and lots of other ones. Like I said, there are 37 in that book. And each section details Minsky's ideas on how the human mind processes this information on a conceptual level. So Minsky uses the example of building blocks early on in the book to demonstrate all those con- all the considerations one has to take in order to complete that simple task. So uh, again, you know, back to that idea of, I want you to build a steeple. I don't know what a steeple is. Oh, a steeple is going to be too green blocks and one orange triangle that goes on top. And then once you teach it, then it, you know, it knows how to do that, but it has to, you have to give it the all, you know, define all the agents to identify things like a block versus a triangle, how to pick that up, uh, how to place them. The fact that the blocks have to go on the bottom and the triangle has to go on the top, all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and he says that once you break it down into those basic parts, then suddenly these, these, uh, uh advances in artificial intelligence become possible. Um, And like I said, you can take an open course on uh, the Society of the Mind on the MIT website. Uh, You can actually find that for free. So if you want to check it out, even if you just want to see some of the lectures and and hear what the man himself had to say about this idea, you can go and do that. And uh, I highly recommend checking it out. At least, you know, satisfy your curiosity for a while. Give it a good 10, 15 minutes. The first <laughs> yeah. lecture is two hours long, and there uh-huh. are a lot of lectures. So, uh, But yeah, this kind of leads to that idea of common sense. And common sense is one of those things that we kind of innately understand as human beings, but what does that mean for artificial intelligence? Yeah, and this is one of the things that I think got mentioned most often, like in the obituaries uh, after he passed away, a lot of publications mentioned that he was interested in giving computers common sense. But what does that really mean from Minsky's point of view? Well, it goes back to that that description I had talked about earlier. Like if you're building a tower, you can't – we know you can't take a block from the bottom of the tower and put it on the top or you can't start at the top and work your way down. Yeah, Obvi- have, obvious to us but maybe not obvious to a computer. Right. So things that are, are common sense we often kind of dismiss as being easy or simple or – it's just a matter of fact, and therefore it's not anything to, uh, to really worry about, except if you're building an artificial system to do those things, the artificial system doesn't know any of that. Yeah. So you have to teach it. And I think his point is sort of that common sense is not as simple as we think it is. It's actually, we, it's actually quite yeah. hard. We, yeah. we think common sense is something that's very basic or very simple because it's intuitive to us. Mm-hmm. But it's not basic. It's not simple. Common sense is incredibly complex. Yeah, he, he had a quote um, that says, uh, common sense is not a simple thing. Instead, it is an immense society of hard-earned practical ideas, of multitudes of life-learned rules and exceptions, dispositions and tendencies, balances and checks, which I think is a good way of putting it. Like it's stuff that once we humans have come in contact with it, you got it, right? Yeah. It's like this little this little box in our brains gets checked and we understand that concept from that point forward, even if we encounter it in a different context in the future. Not so with machines, at least not naturally, which is why it's a big problem in artificial intelligence that if you can create a machine intelligence that is able to mimic that sort of 
uh, feature of human intelligence, you're you're way ahead of the game. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because you've got this – I like your fun fact in here. Well, yes, the fun fact is that did you know yeah. that Marvin Minsky uh, was consulted by Stanley Kubrick as a – I don't know exactly what you call it. Maybe sort of a science advisor for 2001 A Space Odyssey. I did, but only because Minsky would often have Kubrick over to his house for parties as well as Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. Really? Minsky moved in some awesome circles. Uh-huh. <laughs> like like people who were really interested in robotics, not just from the academic side, but from the literary side, were all uh, in contact with him at the time. He taught Ray Kurzweil, didn't he? He may have. I don't know that for a fact. I do know that he, he had conversations with Albert Einstein uh-huh. and said he couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, he was friends with Heinlein. So, I mean, the guy was like, he, he, he was like the guy who knew everybody. Uh-huh. So, uh, it would not surprise me to learn that he had taught Kurzweil. Uh, we have some other stuff to talk about. He has another book called The Emotion Machine, which came out in 2006. It's and this a, is sort of following up on some of the same ideas earlier in his career. Yeah, it's a, it's, most people refer to it as a sequel to Society of Mind. Uh, his central argument in this one is that emotions are really just different ways of thinking. Yeah, and I've read several quotes of his along these lines where he talks about he, – he's sort of urging people not to underestimate the – the uh, cognitive content of emotions, if that makes any sense. He certainly says that, you know, the ability to have these emotions, whether or not they're different methods of thinking, uh, he they they lead to greater intelligence. Yeah. That it, it creates a new capability of looking at information. And it is an interesting way of looking at it, right? Like Like if you are thinking about something and you're angry – you might come to a different conclusion and learn something that you otherwise wouldn't have if you were happy or sad. Well, it also, for me, raises an interesting question, which is that we naturally make a distinction between thoughts and feelings. Yeah. We think they're two different species of things. You know, I have feelings and then I have thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I can have thoughts about feelings and I can have feelings about thoughts. Mm-hmm. But are they necessarily different species? Are, are feelings maybe just another type of thought? Are they just thoughts? And this kind of brings us to that amazing documentary Inside Out, <laughs> uh, which a lot of people have said, you know, it was, it's based on some of the most current information and, and scholarship on uh, emotions and memory and thought. And oh, really? So, yeah, it I, really I is. I haven't seen it. I know, some, I know some people who liked it a lot. I, I saw it. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> when I describe my reaction to Inside Out, which I thought was entertaining, but that's about it. Most people think I'm dead inside because they're like, that movie destroyed me. I cried like crazy. You're like, like, what's wrong with being dead inside? Yeah. uh, Look, a lot of Pixar's movies affect me deeply. That was just not one of them. However, I did think it was a very interesting approach with uh, emotions, their connection to thought and memory. And uh, it seems very similar in many ways to what Minsky was saying. Now, not everybody was totally thrilled with uh, this approach. Some people thought it was an interesting way of understanding the mind, mm-hmm. but a misleading way of thinking about how the brain actually works. Yeah. Uh, so neurologist Richard Restack uh, wrote up a, a review about uh, his, you know, his work on emotions and criticized part of Minsky's approach, saying that Minsky failed to show how emotional functions relate to brain activity. Now, he acknowledged that Minsky explains this by saying our knowledge of the brain changes so quickly that it becomes outdated rapidly. But then Ristak says, well, how can you possibly draw any meaningful correlation between brains and machines if you also are arguing our knowledge of the brain changes so quickly as to essentially contradict itself? So you can't make any conclusion if part of your argument states our knowledge of the brain changes so quickly that it changes our understanding. Like, how can you conclude anything if at the very start of your argument you say, listen, I'm not going to write about the brain because it, our knowledge of it changes so quickly. Anything I write will be out of date by the time this book is published. Uh-huh. But they're totally like machines. Like, that, you, you, just, you know, that's a logical, like, there's, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. 
Now, Rastak also wrote that he had some reservations about some of Minsky's other assertions, uh, many of which seem to draw conclusions about how the brain works based on how large, complex computer systems work. So Rastak wasn't so sure you could support such a connection, but he also said it may turn out that Minsky's completely right. We just don't have the science to support it one way or or you know deny it one way or the other. It's yeah. It's just that without knowing, we can't be sure. Uh-huh. Uh, but it may turn out that these are absolutely on target. We just we just can't be so so sure of it right now. Um, but he did say you could learn a lot about how the mind works by reading Minsky's book. You just wouldn't learn about how that relates to the way your brain functions. Yeah. So again, the mind being this more nebulous platform that rests upon the brain, like it's a manifestation of the brain's abilities. Um, and that we can learn more about how the mind works, but not so much necessarily about the neurology underneath it. Um, it's pretty cool. A- the- any hope coming through for my theory that the brain is just for cooling the blood and we really think with our toenails? Uh I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that science does not currently have very much support for that particular belief, but shine on you crazy diamond. They also said Galileo was wrong. Okay. And moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about Minsky and the concept of free will. Yeah, Minsky had some really interesting thoughts on this, and I want to read a quote. Uh, from his paper, Matter, Mind, and Models. And this was cited in another thing I read about him. But uh, uh, this quote goes, If one thoroughly understands a machine or a program, he finds no urge to attribute volition to it. If one does not understand it so well, he must supply an incomplete model for explanation. Our everyday intuitive models of higher human activity are quite incomplete, and many notions in our informal explanations do not tolerate close examination. Free will or volition is one such notion. People are incapable of explaining how it differs from stochastic caprice, but feel strongly that it does. (laughs) So stochastic caprice, in case you're wondering, would mean random whimsy. Yeah. So he's saying that even though we can't really explain, we we can't give any good account of where free will comes from, we insist we must have it. And that it is different from just random impulses that we have that we act on. Yes, uh, but he continues, I conjecture that this idea has its genesis in a strong primitive defense mechanism. Briefly, in childhood, we learn to recognize various forms of aggression and compulsion and to dislike them, whether we submit or resist. Older, when told that our behavior is controlled by such and such set of laws, we insert this fact in our model inappropriately, along with other recognizers of compulsion. We resist compulsion no matter from whom, and whom is in quotes there. Although resistance is logically futile, this resentment persists and is rationalized by defective explanations since the alternative is emotionally unacceptable. I think that's a very interesting insight. Yeah, and and it applies to more than just intelligence. Yeah. You know, because it it actually reminds me of any time where we encounter something we've never encountered before, and by we I mean humans at large, and – we naturally, as curious beings, want to understand that thing we've just encountered. And often in our first attempts, we will, <laughs> we will create explanations that don't necessarily correlate to any kind of reality in order yeah. to explain it. And it's only later on as we start to peel things away that we really see what's happening underneath the surface. Yeah, and then totally he, – he goes on to apply this same reasoning – uh, about the origins of our resistance to, you know, the idea of determinism and right. and our and our tendency toward free will as a kind of rebellious impulse against compulsion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's like, well, hold on. Now, if we create intelligent machines and they have something like consciousness, will that inherently bring with it the illusion of free will and the resistance to the idea of compulsion by physical determinism. Would a robot with consciousness also insist that it has free will? Yeah, it's an excellent question that right now remains in the realm of philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) 
One day it will not be, though. One day it'll be a reality, whether or not, and it may turn out that the answer is, no, don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I don't know that that's going to be the case because I, I believe very strongly that uh, that our, our concept of free will is based upon ultimately the activity going on in our brains. So if we, in fact, build a system that is truly simulating that activity, it stands to reason that whatever entity is created from that would also experience that same feeling yeah. uh, that it possesses free will. Yeah. And even if you argued, no, I built you so that you could make me toast. It's, you know, that's, that doesn't matter. If someone told me, no, I built you so that I could make you toast. I would. They say, I'll show you yeah. why you built me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, hey, we, we talk about the future on this podcast. I, I have to assume that Minsky, uh, given all his thoughts about artificial intelligence, made some comments somewhere about what he thought the future would be like. He talked about the future and he also, months before his death, he, he had – there were a few different interviews where people were asking him his opinions on the current state of artificial intelligence. And I think those answers are really interesting too but uh, you know the New Yorker piece that that you dug up from 1981. Uh-huh. It was actually called uh, like it was talking about his v- vision of the future. Although, uh-huh. spoiler alert: if you read the whole thing, there isn't a right. lot in yeah. there about that. It's, well, mostly, it's mostly about his, a profile of him. Yeah, though it is a really good one. It's fascinating. It's just that the headline might be a tad misleading, uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, or or it could be more of like a a broad approach. Like you know, he he saw this stuff happening well before it became reality. In fact, his work is what allowed a lot of the artificial intelligence uh, uh, developments to to take place in the first place. Yeah. But uh, one of the things he talked about was he could envision a future, and remember, this is 1981. Uh, in which a with a relatively small amount of technical improvements in robots would see automatic factories in space. Oh, he's dead on. <laughs> now, we do have robots working in a lot of uh, factories doing uh, automated work, just not in space. Oh, wait, I forgot. You have not seen the factories on the far side of the moon. No, well, I Jonathan, haven't. you are in for a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this actually reminds me of a terrible movie by The Asylum I once watched in which – uh, robots were being built in a space station orbiting the Earth and then sent down to Earth. And I thought, what a huge waste of resources. Yeah, just build them on the Earth. Build them on Earth. If, that, if that's where they're doing work, why would you ever build them in space? It's too expensive. Uh, so, yeah, that obviously has not panned out. But we are seeing a lot more of automated systems in factories around the world, uh, a lot more robots being employed Yeah, to the I point w- where we're seeing like – the the thoughts about robotic drivers and robotic drones delivering stuff to us. I mean, it's it's pretty far along in that respect. Now, where did Minsky come down on that? We, we talked about the possibility of machines developing consciousness. Was was he thumbs up to that? Uh, it's interesting. I, I would argue that his answers, depending upon what time of his life you were looking at, mm-hmm. uh, went a little back and forth. It was always a little vague to me, but he did say that he could see a future where machines have minds of their own and their minds would be aware of the various parts that make up those minds, kind of the agents, if you will. Yeah. And that uh, what each of those agents would be capable of doing and be able to use that knowledge to solve any problems that the machine would encounter. It's not the same thing as consciousness, however, necessarily. Yeah. It may just be, oh, I have this task that I've never had to do before that I've got to complete but it's similar to all these other things I know how to do. Therefore, I'm going to employ all of these agents that help me do those similar tasks to complete this one. You wouldn't argue that that in itself is a manifestation of consciousness, I think. If you were like, that rotten so-and-so wants me to do this thing and didn't even tell me how to do it, well, fine, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Then you'd be like, okay, that's a pretty conscious machine. Yeah. Yet again, I'll show you why you created me. Right. So, so... You know, I, I would hate to ascribe a position when I myself am not entirely certain where he fell on that. He may himself have been like, this is a philosophical question that fascinates me, but I don't know what the answer is or I don't know what I feel the answer will be. Uh, but, so, but you mentioned that right before his death, he had thoughts about where we stand with AI today. Yeah, they were not um, 
complimentary thoughts, really? actually. Yeah, no, he he was very dismissive about certain things. Like uh, there was a Washington Post piece that was published shortly after his death, and it contained a lot of little nuggets about Minsky and what he felt, uh, how he felt about certain developments, you know, recent developments in artificial intelligence. Uh, so, for example, they asked him about um, IBM's Watson. I think a lot of people would argue that IBM's Watson is a very impressive display of artificial intelligence. It's not... Or at least a very impressive display of wordplay. And that's kind of what Minsky would say. He said he called it an ad hoc question answering machine, that it wasn't intelligent. It was just a, a question answering machine, hmm. um, which is, I think if you would go to maybe the Watson chef style, where it's starting to try and invent things based upon other things... <laughs> It's not doing a great job, but it's trying. Uh-huh. I think it goes beyond question answering machine. But that was his uh, opinion. And he also talked about how he felt uh, AI developers were making a mistake aiming for what he called the top of the AI problem. So in other words, trying to create systems that on their surface appear to be similar to human thought, but they lack the foundation of what thought is really all about. And therefore, it's just – it's kind of like a chatbot. Yeah. It's just – it's simulating it enough so that it seems intelligent, but there's nothing underneath it to actually support that supposition. I guess from his point of view, the, the problem might be that it's uh, that it's lacking these agents, right? The, yeah. The society of mind, the basic agents that populate the society that becomes thinking. Right. So in other words, instead of having agents, it's simply uh, trying to – follow a program that mimics the way humans would respond to, to situations, but without that underlying you know, network of agents that are actually making it happen. Uh, it's kind of like skipping those, those, those found, that foundation in order to just get the result. But that means that the underlying system is not as robust as what you would need to have a truly intelligent uh, computer. He also said in an interview with MIT Technology Review that the last decade of AI uh, was about, quote, improving systems that aren't very good, end quote. So he contrasted that with the era of the 1960s, the early era of artificial intelligence development, uh, when he said that they were having major breakthroughs on the order of every couple of days, that he and students would talk about these ideas and come up with new uh, approaches and new concepts about thought that would lead to enormous potential breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. He said these days, it's every two or three years you might see a breakthrough. And part of that, he argued, was that we rely too heavily on so-called experts in AI. Yeah, He was actually calling back for the days when he would work with students who, again, because they don't know what's impossible – end up asking questions and coming up with ideas without those constraints and therefore push forward the discipline much further than people who have a preconceived idea of what is and isn't a possibility uh, that have already placed limitations on themselves that they aren't aware don't really exist. So it, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I can see his point uh, also – there is something to say about when you get to a, a when you when a new discipline is created, you would probably expect advancements in that discipline to be extremely rapid early on because there was nothing before. Yeah, <laughs> but as you build and build and build, by necessity, usually things slow down. You just you know you, you've you've explored you you've picked up all the and I hate the phrase, but you've got you picked all the low hanging fruit. Why do you hate the phrase? Because it's overused. I worked for consultants for seven years. I hate low-hanging fruit. Oh, we need to come <laughs> up with uh, with an alternative expression. The easy cheese. All the easy cheese has been eaten. And it's, it's the difficult-to-get cheese. cheese that is the only cheese that's left. Oh, you've, you've, picked, you've picked up the deli counter cheese. Yeah. Yeah, the, the really good stuff that's like under a heavy glass uh, case – and is guarded by wolves. You just haven't ha- been able to get to that yet. Wolf cheese. I go to a lot of weird cheese parties. All right. So that kind of wraps up our discussion of Marvin Minsky. Uh, obviously, like you said, Joe, there are, there's so much more we could have talked about. 
Um, the guy was absolutely fascinating. He has had an enormous impact on the discipline of artificial intelligence, and I, I have no doubt will continue. That impact will continue into the future. Uh, and if you guys enjoyed this, let us know. If you have other people you would like us to talk about, if if I mean, I would love to do a full episode on Ada Lovelace. Oh yeah, I think that she was an absolutely phenomenal person, and uh, it would be really interesting to do a full. Uh, rundown on on her ideas and how how much of a pioneer she was, uh, but you know other people too, like people who are still alive would be great too. Like we, it doesn't have to be someone from. I think uh, they the must past. be dead. Okay, all right. So if you have an idea of someone you would like us to profile, living or dead, let us know. Send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop us a line on Twitter or on Facebook. At Twitter, we are FWThinking. Just search FWThinking in Facebook's little search bar. will pop up. You can leave us a message there. We read all of them. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.